Hello, it's great to have your company for episode 10 of the Media Sport podcast series. As always, I'm your host, Brett Hutchins from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. This series is part of a larger four-year research project operating under the title of The Mobile Media Sport Moment, Markets, Technologies, Power. This episode sees attentions focused specifically on the mobile media component of that title. I'm presently sitting with not one, but two of the leading figures in mobile media and communication studies internationally. Jared Goggin, Professor of Media and Communications at the University of Sydney, and Larissa Hawthe, an artist, digital ethnographer, professor and deputy dean in research and innovation based in the School of Media and Communication at RMIT University in Melbourne. I approached Jared and Larissa after receiving and reading a copy of their co-edited volume, The Routledge Companion to Mobile Media. Featuring a host of leading researchers, this is a comprehensive seven-part, 47-chapter collection that is a compulsory resource for anyone wanting to understand the scope and sophistication of mobile media studies. There are case studies from China, Africa, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, Europe, the UK, US and Australia, as well as sections that cover a wide array of topics, including telecommunications policy, social media, art, gaming, photography, news, emotion, gender and race. There is also a chapter on sport by Clifton Evers that we'll chat about shortly and a section on geographies of mobile social media that features a chapter by Rowan Wilkin on locative media, Rowan having featured in episode three of the podcast series. Jared and Larissa are prolific researchers who have both published multiple books over the past decade, so I'll limit myself to mentioning only one of their most recent titles each. Jared is a co-author of Disability in the Media with Katie Ellis, published by Palgrave Macmillan this year, And Larissa is a co-author of Gaming in Social, Locative and Mobile Media with Ingrid Richardson, published by Palgrave Macmillan last year. I'm only half joking when I say that Larissa and Jared produce books faster than I'm able to read them. And when the outstanding quality of their scholarship is taken into account, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome them to the Media Sport podcast series. Jared and Larissa, thank you for taking time out from your busy schedules. Thank you, Brett. (laughs) Thanks very much, Brett. A good place to begin is your very productive research collaborations over the years. You appear to have started working together in around 2007, perhaps a bit before. How did you come to work together? Do either of you have any observations (laughs) about what's required to successfully collaborate? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we became aware of each other's work, didn't we, in 2005, and then did we first meet up in a conference in Hong Hong Kong Kong. on uh, Asian modernities in mobile, so, and um, yeah, and then we we ran, uh, probably uh, with all the naivety and enthusiasm wonders have, we ran the Mobile Media 2007 conference, of which, and distinguished ourselves by actually getting the book out ready for the conference, yeah. which people were gobsmacked. So um, that's, that's, you know. And when was that conference held? 2007, July, the 2nd to 4th of July, 2007. Lisa reads from the beautiful <laughs> cover. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we all need props. <laughs> But Larissa, what about you? What do, what do you recall? In yeah, the and I, rem- I remember, I think in 2000, so we, when we met in 2005, I mean, I knew of your work because you're about the first person working on mobile media. 
So I was like, yes, you know, he's, he's the person to go to. Um, and then when we met in Hong Kong and talking about, and then I realised, wow, not only are you an expert in the area, but you're also a nice person and you're really collegial and stuff like that. So I think, I mean, I, I think the relationship has been one of, I mean, you've really mentored me in a lot of ways, like um, in terms of the editing and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's been a really great learning relationship, I think. It's yeah. Like, um, but yeah, the 2006, I think we started working on for the yeah. mobile media conference. Yeah, it's an impressive... Then, Thing to actually get a book out prior to a conference. Never do it again. <laughs> never do it again. Yeah, we, and I remember at the time Larissa had, maybe because we were part of, um, and I should just say that, I mean, part of it is I think learning from each other because I've learned so much from working from Larissa and also it's just about what not to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been a heap of fun and I think for collaborations that's the main thing and also yeah. that um, you spark off each other. Yeah. And I think you tag team, so it, it, in a practical way, you know, getting things done. But I think there were there were particular things. I remember when we did the mobile media conference that um, Larissa had been in some ways more steeped, I think, with the international mobile circuit of research that was developing, that people essentially were running, in the absence of a journal or an association, mm -hmm. people were running conferences around mobile media in different parts of the world. And it was a bit organic. Mm -hmm. And they had a certain feature, and that one of them I struck by, we did at mobile, our mobile media conference was, I think we had something like, I don't know, six or eight keynote speakers. Yeah. So we sort of maxed out on keynote speakers. And I think, I remember, I think Larissa was pretty keen on that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> and, for, and it really, it was it fun. Worked. It worked. It yeah. was kind of amazing. Yeah. So I think there were things that we just um, developed and created together through this. Yeah. Um, that have made it because I remember we we organised to have the keynotes at the morning and the, the afternoon. afternoon so that you know how some people go I'll go for the morning session yeah, the keynote yeah, and then yeah. I drop away so it's yeah. like uh uh no you're not going to and the keynotes were people like Judy Wiseman and yeah, stuff so yeah. it's like you know a big deal <laughs> and we had double keynotes at some stage I yeah. think from memory we had and we had a lot of and I think there was a lot of goodwill and also because maybe we came in and I think what was distinctive and maybe important about our work and I think um, you know work in a part of the world in mm. Australia but Asia Pacific particularly Larissa I think was very very much seeing things through the prism of Asia Pacific in terms mm. of your work on Korea and Japan yeah. but I think we also from cultural media studies and mm. I think what I learned from Larissa from the artistic mm. creative dimensions as well Bringing that together, seeing mobile phones as mobile media mm -hmm. through this conference was something that really just constellated a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting how you, you've since moved through uh, well, a number of collaborations, but ultimately finishing with the most recent one, which is yeah. the Routledge Companion. How do you go about planning, organising and trying to represent the state of research going on internationally? Mm, that's a tricky question. I think lots of conversations is the starting point because you can't be completely inclusive of everything. So you do actually have to make decisions about what yeah. gets included and what where you think future directions are going and mm. what you see the history. And so it is it's a curatorial exercise. Mm. Um, and but yeah to also allow for that space because it is such an interdisciplinary field to allow for that room mm. and and movement mm. i think that's right and i think there's um i mean one of that word curatorial i think picks up for me why it's mm. i enjoy editing so much and enjoy it doing collaboratively mm. that it's so i find it a really rich experience to yeah. have that interplay 
and that kind of helps with the practical things about doing collections. You know that um, you know they just they take time. Um, people can go in, they can go out, they can drop drop in, drop out of it, and you get a bit of a mix. You know, you get a mix of. I mean, often when you put the proposal and you have the more systematic view, you say something, we'll have the, you know, distinguished scholars, such as it is in a young field like, you know, mobile communication media studies, and the emerging figures. And in some ways that just, we, I think we managed to, by just keeping our, um, you know, noses to the ground or antennae out, knowing what mm. was happening, thinking, wow, that's really interesting, or there's the gap, you know. Mm. Lots of people work on, have done stuff on femi femininities in mobiles, so they're mm. not as many as they might. What about masculinities? Mm. What about this topic? Yeah. And we, I mean, in this book, I think we were um, probably thinking about, say, the, the really good reference work that had already come out, Jim Katz's handbook mm. of mobile communication. Wow, how do you top that? Yeah. Mm. And actually, I think by focusing on the media aspect of that and also the, the different moment, uh, it seemed to come together. Mm. And Jared, you've written a, a chapter on sport and mobile media in a collection edited by David Rowe and yeah. myself. And there's also a chapter in the companion by Clifton Evers that examines mobile phones, masculinity and surf, you yeah. know, surfing. Yeah. I mean, what are your reflections? And many of the listeners to this podcast, of course, are interested in sports. Sport. Yeah. You know, what are your reflections on what the study of sport might or might not contribute to mobile media studies more generally? Well, I, I think it has an enormous amount to contribute, actually, and I, that's why I'm very excited about your own work, Brett, and also, I, you know, I just loved having the opportunity to, to really write about and think about sport and mobile media for your and David Rowe's collection, um, because it struck me this, you know, sport is such an interesting area of social life, and it is so media-rich, you know, it's in some ways... Um, you know, such a kind of exemplary case and leading case about what's happening in, in social life um, and, and media. And so I think that there's so many aspects of that to be um, sort of brought out, as it were. That, And in some ways it really just, it requires, you know, kind of up-to-date empirical research to actually understand what's happening at all the different levels of sport, what's happening in sport in people's everyday lives, that, you know, the sense in which... Anyone involved in sport now, a lot of, and this probably happened, you know, 15 years ago, the micro-coordination around sport for people happens with mm -hmm. mobiles, the sending out of text to say, oh, your rugby game's on it, blah, 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 your netball game's on it, such and such, um, to the sense in which if you look at um, the, the sort of global media systems, uh, as, as, you know, you've done so well, Brett, and you work with David, just to say, look, at, at a systematic level, you've got this, inter this kind of convergence between the media companies, traditional media, uh, online and mobile media, and sport. You know, the whole complex of media sport is so big. And then to try and understand, well, what's happening around that? What happens when people are, um, are running a stadium, running a venue, and they're thinking about now that they have to think about, they have to be a media provider. It's not about just selling the rights to the big TV broadcaster or something. Actually, they have to think about, they have to curate that experience for their audiences because I'm sitting there, I want to be able to tweet the photo. I want to be able to stick that on Facebook. And if the mobile phone tower coverage is crap, that's a problem, you know. So what about Wi-Fi? You know, what about that? So I think that means, that seems to me a massive shift. So there's the shifts in the kind of micro level, social practices, and then there's shifts in large-scale provision that previously people would study uh, you know, when I became aware of sport and media studies, it was, you know, pulling international teams of researchers together to study the Olympics. 
and you would study the Olympics in a particular um, place and you would pull together teams from around the world because when you had the Olympics, people would have to build a big media centre, they would have to do a whole bunch of things around media and a lot of, you know, the, the, there were a lot of media research that was, say, working around those kind of things. And I think now that poses new challenges with particularly mobile media to think, you've, you've got, how's that coming together industrially? How's that coming together with micro things? Well, so your other recent book with Ingrid Richardson analyses gaming in the context of social locative and mobile media. In what your mind, what insights does mobile gaming afford into everyday media practices, perhaps like the sort of things Jerry's just talked about in sport, and particularly in context of the Asia-Pacific region? Yep. Um, so Ingrid and I are working on a ARC discovery grant at the moment, which is looking at um, mobile gaming in everyday life in Australia. And so that, that book was kind of a the incubator for that grant. Um, and we've been really interested in looking at mobile gaming as a kind of lens for understanding, you know, kind of um, socio-cultural dynamics. Um, and of course, thinking about, say, the rise of mobile gaming, um, you know, with the rise of smartphones, you've had the rise of, you know, different types of games, a kind of casualization of games, but you've also had a professionalization of games. I think it's a really kind of vibrant industry to look at, but it's also a really vibrant practice in terms of who's playing, what they're playing, where they're playing. Um, so we really, we, we go into people's homes and we ask for scenarios of use and, and it's kind of really fascinating what people do and don't do and their expectations and, mm. and things like that. So I mean, we find it a really rich lens because you say, tell us about mobile gaming or why you don't mo game on the mobile phone and it actually tells a bigger story about their relationships, mm. their life their everyday practices. So it's a really rich lens for understanding um, bigger issues. Um, one of the things that also Ingrid and I have been really interested in, we've always looked at gaming not so much, we've always looked at it as a really interesting way to understand you know, the socio-cultural dimensions of, of um, the practice. And so, you know, like my working career has been looking at it, looking, you know, understanding why, say, esports has been such a big phenomenon in career. And, you know, like T.O. Taylor looked at it and there was, a, there was a moment there in about, I think, 2008 where it looked like America might follow, that they might be able to do what the South Koreans have done. But, you know, the South Koreans really, you know, I mean, this is where you see that, it, gaming is really about the, the, the socio-cultural because mm. it can't be replicated. So mm. what the industry did was very particular. It was at a very particular time when the, their version of the MBN was being rolled out. Um, and so they could time it so that people could go into internet cafes and it was all free. So there was an impetus there to go into those cafes and play games because it was free. Mm. Um, and that was all kind of organised through the industry and, and government. And so that's set up a kind of, but you've also got to think in South Korea, children live with their parents until they get married and sometimes they still continue living with their parents. So that having that kind of rites of passage for um, teenagers, it was like these spaces became that. And so they became really interesting for various different reasons of intimacy and, 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 and um, you know, transgression, all that kind of stuff. So, um, I mean, so if you think about South Korea and it's um, the kind of rise of the esports, um, it hasn't been replicated anywhere else and, and there's good reason for that. But um, it does speak to a broader kind of casualization and, and professionalization around games, which is also happening around sport in general. Mm -hmm. So, and for people who aren't familiar with the scale of the sports, oh right, yes, career, yes, I mean, okay. Just, uh, what is it like? Yeah, what's it? What, what's it actually it's like? It's amazing. Like mm -hmm. you go along, and it's 
phenomenal. Um, they, they, they can be set at stadiums, but they can also be in shopping malls and things like that. They're kind of, I've, I've been to one which was, there was probably about 20,000 people there, and the, the players come out. I mean, a player, a, a top player can win a million dollars a year. So, you know, but there's, there's, that's rare, you know. So there's these top players that everyone wants to be like, I want to be a player, I want to transgress to a super pro league player. Um, and so that keeps the shining light there, but there's a lot of exploitation at a lower level. But um, they come out and they wear their suits like their space, you know, like they're, they're kind of going like NASA. It's like NASA yeah, being launched. And it, it's just, and the crowds, the, the way that crowds are in South Korea, there's a very kind of, there's a sense of um, collectiveness there. Mm. And, you know, they're just like, I mean, I didn't think I would ever go, I don't go along to many sports things and participate, but there was no way I couldn't participate because mm. it was just, it was infectious, absolutely infectious. It's a bit like when people say, go along to a football match and, and then you'll see what it really is about, you know, the real thing as opposed to the mediated experience. But it's like, and then you go along and the crowd just makes you feel something. It has an effect that you just never imagined could be there. Yeah. It is amazing. I'm just chiming in here from my fan yeah. perspective because yeah. I, I ended up at the League of Legends World Championship at Seoul National Stadium. Oh, last wow. October. No, that, that, that has and to be I like, was you need a badge for that. <laughs> I think there were 40,000 people. It's amazing, yeah. And the multiple screens, but the, mm. the whole orchestration of it, the music, the yeah. crowds, are just, yeah. just extraordinary. Yeah. And it also points to something quite important. I mean, a lot of research going on in cultural and media studies is often, you know, UK, US, Europe, Australia, mm. Anglosphere. I mean, mm. what... I mean, in the context of mobile media, the study of countries like China and Korea and Japan is extraordinarily, you know, important in understanding where innovation and socio-cultural change comes from. I mean, mm. is you've obviously spent a lot of time there as an ethnographer. I mean, what do these contexts offer for people who haven't been in those countries for you know, and trying to understand what media does in everyday life? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's one of the things that because I I, missed, I started my research in Japan, um, and Japan has a very particular history of the the kind of rise of well, I mean, uh, Mimi Ito would talk about it in terms of the personal port, um, portable pedestrian kind of it does have a very so the the rise of the PSP plays etc. It's a kind of individuated um, process which it is not replicating somewhere like South Korea. I mean, there's many there's many reasons why you know like. <laughs> you know, colonialism <laughs> and things like that. So there's a, there's a history and a legacy there. But I think what really excites me about looking at a place like Japan and then South Korea and China is just how diverse and divergent mm. they are. Mm. So you you pretty much getting as as opposite as possible. So um, and I think in Australia, um, you know, the obvious way, you know, it looks like we obviously look to America and a lot of the kind of gaming traditions, but actually having worked in, you know, a games program for a long time, it's actually like the kids are all cosplaying, so they're all doing the costume play in Japan. And actually Japan is quite a place for their rites of passage from being a player transgressing transgressing into becoming a maker or a designer mm. or something. So it's a really part of that process. And that is that kind of turning the obvious stereotypical mainstream you look to the US for uh, models um, and instead turning that around saying no we actually look to the region and the region is you know it is even though it's um, you know divergent it is actually part of our context mm. yes yeah, it's, so, it's fascinating yeah. yeah and I mean one of the things that's also coming out um, that's really interesting in, in the kind of game 
game space is um, in video game space is the phenomena of let's play, um, with the whole kind of people watching them, filming themselves playing those games, mm. which I think is really speaking to you know the the history of te the televisual, the rise of the televisual in sports and how that reshaped sports, mm. and it'll be interesting to see how that then reshapes the games we make in that performative space. So. I think that that's really that kind of, and the, I think the role of mobile media play, plays a key role there, that people can be watching these mm. and they can be having their screen while playing their game and then also having their mobile phone playing some mm. shortcuts mm. on that. And I think, so there's multiple screens can create, uh, I think are creating um, new ways of um, thinking through performativity around It's fascinating because ESPN literally uh, just moving into covering any sports in a serious way and things like even USA Today and mm. a few other organisations are actually starting to put esports coverage in as mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah, you're right, I haven't yeah. actually thought hard about the, the notion of what that, that spectacle yeah. of playing would do to the design and performance of actually playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like an infinite regress. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that's a big catch-up, isn't it, yeah. for the ESPN and others to do that because yeah. it's just so mainstream now that people are just on YouTube yeah. watching yeah. watching people play Yeah, your games. kids, um, they're doing you think they are? They've got a YouTube. More than yeah. so that. And I don't know yeah. if that's been thought through, but yeah. I agree that the mobile media aspect of that is crucial to mm. understand. Yeah. How does that in that hall of mirrors of the infinite regress? <laughs> yeah. where, where does that <laughs> Probably in? not the most positive analogy <laughs> for many years. <laughs> and Jared, you've also written extensively about disability in the media yep. and media you know, technologies, and indeed you're completing your own four year research <laughs> on disability and digital technology, which is what brings you to Melbourne today. Yeah. Um, can you speak to the relationship between mobile media and disability, particularly in terms of participation, access and representation? Sure. Yeah, look, it's, um, it's a really interesting topic, I suppose, because um, I think that's um, really now become such a zone for innovation in its own right that, uh, you know, we've often thought about disability and technology being about web accessibility, you know, that's been one area where people, a lot of people think, oh, disability, yeah, web accessibility, we need to do that. But I think in, with mobile media, that's been um, a submerged topic that's then become more visible, so that in first generation mobiles, the idea that um, people could have a portable telephony device was then giving security to people, giving some communication ability. Text messaging in the second generation mobiles became something that famously deaf people used, mm. text messaging. Um, then 3G and um, probably broadband internet as well, the, the sorts of varieties of mobile internet we found now. If you think about deaf people then have the ability to use more video communication, so to use sign language. But with the advent of things like tablets and smartphones, they've often talked about as a revolution, you know, quote unquote, for people with disability because of the number of ways in which communication broadens, I suppose, that people with intellectual disabilities can use tablet computers, iPads and um, so on to, to, to interact with. And so this has become, I think, a really interesting um, space that's now leading um, to some other things. So locative media um, has become an area where previously, say, Blind people have always had the technology of the, you know, the seeing eye dog that, or the, you know, the white cane and some of the stereotypes of that. But with smartphones, they've got the ability to locate people in space, to do wayfinding, to do navigation. Mm. 
So this has been, I think, really this, you know, been an area that people are now working on a lot more and the research is starting to come. So one of the areas where um, people have been looking at innovation is being about wearables. So the, the Google Glass project, which is sort of a bit on ice at the moment, <laughs> that had become a way that, you know, for instance, um, people were looking at ways that blind people could get information from the environment, um, whether it was in a supermarket to find out what were the details of a product or trying to find out where was the men's and the women's toilets, oh, the wow. gendering of social space, <laughs> yeah. being triggered off and being able to um, use pattern recognition technologies and Google Glass to actually have that information mm. fed to them. So I think it's been a really interesting area and one of the insights that's coming through, I think, somewhere some people working on uh, STS studies. There's someone called Mara Mills at uh, NYU who's working on this, looking at the histories of communication and communication engineering and how disability threads into that, you know, back to the famous uh, Alexander Graham Bell's invention of the telephone to try and help people with hearing um, loss and impairment, through a whole range of different ways in which even mobile media, cellular mobile phone, you know, it, it relies on um, engineering assumptions and designs about what, what range of a human voice can be digitised and modulated. So there's all sorts of normative assumptions in the technology and if you take a disability studies perspective, you can see that um, that has implications for understanding technology more generally. That you know, that if we if we think around what are the kinds of normal normalising identities that are assumed by particular kinds of technology, some technologies suit um, you know some people but not other people, and there are a whole set of assumptions around that. So. And the issue of representation and things, I'm thinking about events like the right. Paralympics. Yes, I mean, indeed, what, yeah. What, what role do they play in yeah. creating normative assumptions? Yeah, yeah. But equally, I suppose, challenging them at different, in different, different times. Ways. Yeah, yeah so I, I think one of the interesting things about representation, and it's quite powerful, is that um, if disability has been something that's really just come on the agenda in the last 10 years internationally to say, look, overall, if you've got, say, 25%, 15 to 25% of populations worldwide have got some form of disability, um, different kinds, and often, you know, historically, people with disabilities have been excluded, marginalised, live in poverty, there's gender dimensions to disability. Um, but the ways that one of the aspects of trying to get social transformation around this, if we regard this as a social justice and human rights issue, which globally we've all agreed we do now, at least in principle, is the, I suppose the stereotypes and the images that we have around disability, which go very deep. Um, and so, you know, one of these is that the old one is the charity model of disability, that people with disabilities are, you know, deserving our pity, deserving charity. Um, and there's other kind of stereotypes that have come, come around that you see in sport, for instance, so that one of the, the debates around people with disabilities in sport has been the sense in which we, you know, I think 15 years ago when I was writing about um, sport and disability and media representation, um, Christopher Newell and I wrote a piece about the Sydney Olympics about being disabling in the sense that the way that athletes with disability were being talked about was as, you know, overcoming their disability is transcending what we call the super crip image. So, you, you know, you're either 
a poor person with disability who needed our pity or you're a super crit. You just were kind of like the wheelchair basketball players, you know, in that film Murder Ball. You were sort of muscular, you were out there, you had your chair or you had your prosthesis and you were kind of overcoming. So the representational aspect is really powerful because it's not just about how, as a society, we see, you know, those of us with disability, but it's about all of us. It is about normalcy, but this is about policing the boundaries of, of what's acceptable. As we know with gender and sexuality as well, that it, it's the stigmatisation of one group is about policing everyone. And I think what's been really interesting about, you know, the, um, the sort of recent um, aspects of, of sport and disability has been, particularly with online and mobile media, is the opportunity to push back against some of the representation. So a really interesting um, thing I've been writing about recently is Oscar Pistorius, a South African athlete who was, you know, yeah. he, he, you know, blade runner, so he has the carbon fibre prosthesis, someone with... Um, you know, double amputee who becomes a world athlete. He crosses over, he competes in the Olympics as well. So quite amazing. So he's a sort of, there's idolatry. He's an icon, a global sporting icon. Nike brand, his, uh, the ad has him being fired like a bullet out of a chamber. And then he comes crashing down because, of course, he kills his girlfriend, uh, Rita Stimkamp, um, two or three years ago. And so there are incredible media representations around this mm -hmm. that you see the role of uh, Twitter, for instance, being incredibly important in how that plays out. So there's these aspects of Inside Pistorius in, the, in his rise where you see also the way that sport is represented globally, the role of media in sport, much more involves online and mobile media in this. Mm -hmm. And then when sporting celebrities like Pistorius fall from grace, there are these amazing debates on Twitter, on Facebook, where people debate, you know, because when Pistorius gets accused of um, and tried for the murder of his girlfriend, there are different defences, so that his lawyers run a defence, or it, it, it's in the trial transcripts, they say, well, um, so he was woken by an intruder mm -hmm. in his flat, and he had to put his prosthesis on. So there's a sort of debate about this and how this plays out. Then in the sentencing, there's some I debates. About that. I thought it just like shot from the Yeah, well, they, like they, they, they kind of yeah. left this go in a way. Then there's aspects of, of the case to, about culpability, to what extent was this culpable. So there was a sort of debate around intention. Mm -hmm. And then at the end around sentencing, there was a debate to say, well, if he's found, you know, if he's found him guilty, um, not of um, homicide, but um, of, of lesser um, charges, still unlawful killing and... Um, what, what then should be sentenced? He, if he's in a South African prison, mm -hmm. that he'll be um, discriminated against. He, yeah. he'll, he won't have the support he needs as a person with disability. So this all plays around that this is actually... So, so in the Pistorius affair, it's really incredibly interesting to see what's the aspects of how Pistorius and disability gets mm -hmm. represented around sport, uh, how it plays out, mm -hmm. and then... This is not the sporting arena per se when he's accused of murder, but it's very much about how he's constructed as a sporting celebrity. But he was a national hero in South Africa. Yeah. How do you understand this? How does the very specific South African aspects of this play into the global imaginary of sport? And so it's a great case. Oh, for this. That's fantastic. <laughs> 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 Look, um, I'm, I'm mindful of time given that 
um, Chair's presenting uh, shortly. <laughs> so a, a closing question for, for both of you. Um, you know, what are you both working on at the moment and what can we look forward to in the next couple of years? Okay, well, um, at the moment I'm working with um, Ingrid on the mobile gaming project, so hopefully we'll have lots of things coming out of that very soon. Um, and also I'm working with Heather Horse and uh, Sarah Pink and Genevieve Bell on a project called Locating the Mobile, um, which looks at um, basically um, located media in Melbourne, um, Shanghai and Tokyo um, in households. And what we're doing is we're trying to look at a kind of cross-generational, intergenerational use. Um, and so, um, and, and it's quite interesting when you think about the different countries and the way in which located media has kind of been rolled out. So, you know, kind of Australia is probably one of the later places, but it's, you know, kind of being embraced quite quickly. Although in one of our studies, we've found some people pushing back on Google Maps, for example, saying that they don't like the, the mm. way that it plays with scale and so it makes a place feel unfamiliar. So we're kind of exploring those kind of people who are pushing back and going back to Melways, you know, <laughs> which is, for those that don't know what Melways is, it's the old map books where, you, you know, like you can actually open them up. The street directories. The street directories and you can actually, they're all at the same scale so you get, a, you know what you're going to and it's familiar. Um, yeah, so we're, um, and one of the things that we've been looking at, for example, like in Japan, um, say adults with their parents who are perhaps getting a little bit elderly, how located media can start to become a way in which they can do some friendly surveillance. Um, so friendly surveillance works always. It works for younger children, but it also works for perhaps the elderly where, you know, issues like mental health might be mm. um, at play. So, that, you know, like, so that still gives them their independence, but allows... Um, you know, the family to know what's going on just in case anything goes wrong. Interesting. Um, mm. So that's what we're working on at the moment, and that's with Intel. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm. it's a linkage. Yeah. Mm. So I'm working on a, a book on disability in the mobile phone to try and tell this yeah. story that I was giving a short account of. And then there's a related book um, that's on disability and technology that insists in some ways the afterlives of, of, of mobile media which do things like 3D printing, um, disability and big data, uh, wearables and uh, driverless cars and autonomous vehicles, which has like become sort of logistical media. Yeah. Um, so that's with my four-year future fellowship project. But the other project that might be worth mentioning is that I'm doing, trying to wrap up um, a project on internet histories in the Asia-Pacific. So we've got a book we're writing on Asia-Pacific internets and an edited volume on global internet history. So one of the things we're trying to do on that is, is to bring together as one of the chapters of our book um, a sort of account of mobile internets, the history of mobile internets in Asia Pacific as part of a larger um, you know, account, of, you know, regional account of, of how you understand the history of the internet. And I'm, I think I'm really interested in the region, actually. We've you know, maybe come across or talked about that a little bit, alluded to it in our conversation today. The importance of having some of these regional understandings mm. and a bit of a mediation between local, national instances and global. It's mm. fantastic. Thank you both for taking the time to chat with me and good luck with those projects and books. And <laughs> <laughs> Game on. Game on. <laughs> Thanks, Brett. Thanks, Brett. Okay. Thanks.